So let's consider our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at His glorious, eternal, and universal reign. We begin here, right here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now I'd like for you to picture, if you would, in your mind, uh, the map that might be in the back of your Bible there, the map of the Holy Land. And I want you to consider, if you would, uh, the Sea of Galilee is up here, okay? The Dead Sea is down here between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. What is that? That's right, that's the Jordan River. In the land of Naphtali, in the land of Zebulon, where is that? It's up here, up here to the north. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And Naphtali was a place, as well as Zebulon, where all of those that would, or at least many, that would attack Israel, they would go through there. They would go through the land of Naphtali and Zebulon, a land that apparently was populated with more Gentiles, perhaps, than other areas of the, of the land of Israel. That was a land that was ravaged. A land that was always the first contact with the enemy, if you will, because nobody wanted to cross the Jordan to attack Israel. But they could from the north. And what Isaiah is saying is this this ravaged place, this place, physically dark, spiritually dark, look there for Messiah. Joseph, the human father of the Lord Jesus, was a man of Galilee. The Lord Jesus spent much of his time there in Galilee. It was out of Galilee, out of this God-forsaken place, that Isaiah was saying hundreds of years before Messiah came, that that's where you should look for the Messiah. Not unlike the same situation that Ezekiel encountered when God brought him into the valley of dry bones. And what did Ezekiel say? He said they were very dry. In other words, what Ezekiel was saying was the situation is hopeless. The situation is hopeless. Perhaps I mentioned when we looked at Ezekiel chapter 37, that it wasn't unlike Charles Dickens, one of my favorite Christmas stories, when he begins the story and he says, nothing good can come of this if you don't understand this very important fact, Jacob Marley was dead. (laughs) He was dead. And if you don't get the fact that Jacob Marley was dead, then you're not going to understand many aspects of the beauty of Charles Dickens' great work, A Christmas Carol. And what is what Isaiah is saying here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1? And this is, how, this is how messianic rescues work. There's no hope. There's no, there's no hope. There's no expectation. Everything I see is dark, ravaged, dead, broken, And what is Isaiah saying? He says, out of this 
place. Look. Look for the Messiah. Look for the Messiah. Is Isaiah informs Israel that they must look to this region. The promise God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 will be fulfilled in the region of Galilee. Is it any surprise to you that this methodology that the Creator, the Master and Commander of the universe would use, this one who took David, the least of all his brothers, from a field shepherding sheep to be anointed king, the most unexpected of all. And we see that this is the way the Lord would also rescue His people. Now, we know that this situation with Israel, of course, represents each of us as well, individually. The Israel of God, who is that? Look at the Lord Jesus. I mean, Peter himself, after the crucifixion, what did Peter say? Hopeless. Hey, this thing was great while it lasted, but this deal's a bust, man. I'm going back to fishing. It looked great, but now not so great. Right? And so this is the same situation for us, right? And this is one of the things that would be important as we apply this truth to those of us who are the Israel of God attached to the one singular Israel of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, only by our union with Christ, only by His righteousness applied to us, only by our own connection with Him permanently as He mediates for us, as He looks to the Father, as he, we receive all of the sweet benefits of the Lord Jesus as He gives us life. But Isaiah is showing us what was our situation before we were rescued by Messiah. Well, look at the situation in Israel. Why did people turn to God during this time in Israel? Well, Isaiah says in chapter 8 of this book that there were people that turned to God, and what did they do when they turned to Him? They cursed His name. And that was the situation. Again, so hopeless, so bleak was the situation. At this point, only those who are redeemed would actually view this bleak situation as hopeless. A question for you. When you were compelled to turn to the Lord Jesus, did you view your own spiritual situation as desperate? It seems that many of us may be inclined to move too quickly through the realities of our own spiritual darkness before God saved us. We may have said, no, no, I, I really wasn't that bad. It was okay. I had an okay life. I, I, uh, things weren't as bad as perhaps they might have seemed. And Isaiah says, let me... Let's take a look back for a minute and let me show you the reality. Isaiah is saying, the Messiah doesn't rescue anyone from spiritual beauty. There is no one in the category of spiritual beauty. The only people that Messiah rescues are people that are in spiritual darkness. Spiritual, what is that? You may say, well, my spiritual darkness was really kind of, it was like LED lights or something turned down. I mean, it was really okay. It wasn't too bad. Isaiah says, no. 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 If you think that's not so bad, then you don't understand hell. 
If you don't think that's not so bad, then you don't understand what the angel Gabriel was doing just before he encountered the prophets of God. Fighting spiritual battles, and it was no simple matter, even for an archangel. The darkness. Again, the only spiritual location that we can be rescued is darkness. Our Savior does not fetch us from a spiritually beautiful life. Why is this so important? Well, if you don't see the valley of dry bones for what it is, then you won't rejoice the way you ought to see that God raised up the nation from the valley of dry bones. This is none other than a picture of who we are. Without Christ, we are absolutely and despicably hopeless. We are wallowing in the curses of God. And we are bound for a Christless eternity. And let me assure you, hell is not a block party for wicked people. Hell is a horrifying place for the most horrifying people. There is no joy there. There is only the curses and the payment and the penalty of sin. Isaiah is snapping us out of that. We, we can't, of course, repurpose our own pride. Our walk in darkness is often characterized with the sin of pride and haughtiness. And while it doesn't always reveal itself as angry demands, it's nonetheless an attempt to replace God with oneself, and it never ends well. I'm referencing Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17. The Bible says, "...and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. A significant aspect of our own spiritual darkness, Isaiah is telling us in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, is that that is referred to as our pride. And the more that we unravel this issue, the more that we see that, yes, in fact, those, those uh, saints of old were in fact right when they saw that every sin seems to touch pride or every, every pride seems to touch every sin and so forth. And we, we would wince at the declaration that why are we despising God in the Word of God when we express our own pride, but nonetheless that is the truth of the situation. The Bible reveals in Isaiah 2.17 that the extent of our personal humility will impact the glory God receives in our life. Children, I did a little scientific research this week You know, when people say things don't mix, they often think of oil and water. Right? You ever seen oil and water? Maybe you've looked at the Italian dressing as you pull it out of the refrigerator. You know what I'm saying? And it looks like there's kind of a mixture going on there. And uh, and you, you might shake that up a little bit. Well, it turns out that oil and water can mix. I mean, there are ways that you can mix oil and water. But Isaiah is telling us that there is, in fact, no way to mix your pride and God's glory. They're mutually exclusive. There is no mixture. God is not going to say, okay, well, let me, I'll tell you what, I'll take 90% and you take 10. How about that? 
It doesn't work that way. To the extent that we lay aside our own pride and we enter into the sweetness of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, to that extent He will then be glorified Himself and in us, and to that extent we will also have joy. Joy everlasting. Your anger, the insistence of having your own personal preferences, the selection of your own comfort and ease, whether it's your own comfort and ease over getting up and lovingly disciplining children or graciously serving others, these are all expressions of haughtiness and pride. Our generation is so entrenched in narcissism, I fear sometimes that we won't find our way out. But sometimes it's called by different names. We're speaking of the darkness. We're speaking of the darkness. Isaiah spends a bit of time talking about the darkness before the Messiah came. And the own darkness in our own lives that, again, uh, we desire to perhaps not seem so bad. Our culture is so entrenched, as I said, in narcissism. But they often call it by different names. They often call it by different names. And this is one of the geniuses of John Bunyan's work, The Holy War. Because in The Holy War, he shows us how those who are wicked and call themselves by names that actually don't reflect reality. Mr. Peace, for instance, in Bunyan's Holy War. Mr. Peace desires that there always be peace. And so, basically, he was just a flatterer. And and, uh, Diabolus would, uh, again, proclaim that, yes, he was peace. but, But the Savior says, no, your name is actually false peace. False peace. And so we actually call narcissism and our own self-centeredness is... We call it things like conviction. We call it things like self-care, like this is the real me. Like this is leadership, you do what I say. This is patriarchy or motherhood or the pursuit of excellence or success or biblical headship. This is delegation. It's okay to delegate. But does it have the reflection of pride? You say these are the fruits of success. Well, God may call that a lack of humility. You may say this is the life I deserve, the life I earn, the liberty in Christ. This is how I teach others. This is the biblical respect I deserve. Again, you notice obviously that all of these things have a reflection that are in fact good in many ways. But nonetheless, we do often call our own selfish self-absorption by these names. This is what Isaiah is calling out to us to recognize Let us pray. Father, would you forgive us as a people for the ways that we often unwittingly enter into an exaltation, not of you, but of us. Help us, Lord, 
to be more mindful of you and less mindful of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The point in humility isn't that you think yourself despicable. It's simply that you think of yourself as human and that you look to a loving God in heaven. True joy is found in Christ, regaling in the majesty of God. True lasting joy will never be about you. Again, yes, it's us that experiences joy, right? But thankfully, we're not the object of joy. If I were to meditate on me for a few minutes, I might be happy for a second or two, but I've got to move on after that, you know? Move on to something that's far more appropriate for me to meditate on. In a messianic deliverance, there are no other possibilities. This is where God finds us. This is the situation. Spiritual darkness. But let's move on. Because there's much more to see here in this passage of Scripture. The people that walked in darkness, you should be thinking right now of John chapter 1, by the way. This is a Christmas sermon. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. Verse 3 says, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. Look at the joy in this deliverance. Again, if if you don't know Marley's dead, the story is not going to make much sense. It's not going to be anywhere near as exciting for you. If you don't understand your own spiritual darkness, the rescue of the Messiah will seem rather yesterday-ish. But it's never that way. And the greatest expressions of joy is what the, what the writer here, what the Lord is using this writer for us to help us understand. And I want to tell you, the Lord saw fit this morning to give me a little piece of this joy. This joy, I must say, associated with the harvest of a farm. Forgive me for a personal story. This morning at 4.15, I heard all kinds of coyotes yelling about. So I decided to get up and go out and look for a newborn calf. So there I am looking for this newborn calf because I was afraid that maybe the coyotes had taken it. And so I was looking out there. It was dark. My flashlight, not so hot. I saw Mama, but I didn't see the calf. And I went back in the house, prayed. First lights, about 7 o'clock these days, I went out and there was this little guy. Just happy as a lark, you know. The Lord be praised. The joy of the harvest. We don't know a lot about that in urbanized societies because we can go buy many things out of season, right? It's, uh, we, as a matter of fact, it may be difficult for us to even declare what is the season for, for instance, almonds or figs, as we saw in Sunday school last week or many other things. The joy of the harvest. 
This is, this is the picture throughout the Scriptures. The joy of the harvest is this, this seemingly uh, uh, glorious day, right? And we know our own harvest when we think of Thanksgiving, for instance, was certainly an expression of that idea. And this is what Isaiah brings us to here. You've multiplied the nation. What joy is he speaking of here? I don't think he's talking about property. I think he's talking about babies. I think... I think we, of all people, know about the joy of little children, right? And, and what joy does it bring? And then we consider also this joy of battlefield success in all of the occasions where Israel was being sacked by her enemies and she successfully fought them off. This is battlefield success. Without it, what would happen? Well, they lose everything. They lose their livelihoods. They lose their physical homes, their land. The joy of battlefield success, I think, in the last generation, and certainly in our, in our understanding, even of our historical understanding, likely if you were to read of the joys of VE Day and VJ Day, children I'm referring to the victory in Europe and the victory over Japan in World War II, if you were to understand and see all the ticker tape parades and listen to all the glorious speeches and to see the, see the bright faces of the soldiers in Europe and in the fields that were fought in Japan, if you were to be able to see their faces... If you were to be able to enter into that, after all of the difficulties, all of the hardships, over all of the years of war, if you were to be able to see the joy on the faces of those, then you would understand what Isaiah is talking about here as he anticipates and does his dead-level best to explain to us the joy of a messianic deliverance. And World War II is a good example for us because we may be inclined as those who are associated with the United States of America to think that it was always a done deal. No. World War II was a war that was on the edge every single day. The edge of winning or losing. And so we should be able to understand as Isaiah is doing his best to explain the sweet joy, even of battlefield success. As a matter of fact, he associates it with the day of Midian. Children, what do you know about Midian? Well, the Lord used a guy in the battle of Midian whose name rhymes with Midian, actually. Who is that? It's okay. Gideon. That's right. Gideon had this massive army, right? Remember that? A massive army? Well, it wasn't a massive army. His army could fit in a submarine. He had 300 people. And God used them to wallop 135. Zero, zero, zero. 135,000 people that were conquered that day through Midian. So think of all the joyous things. Think of the totally unexpected joy that you've experienced in your life. Think of that. And just like in the book of Hebrews, where there's always these comparisons going on, Isaiah's saying, oh man, no, this is a whole lot better. 
This is a whole lot better. What's the cause of all the joy? Again, this is an illustration. These are illustrations. Harvest is an illustration. Right? New children being born, that's an illustration. Battle victories, that's an illustration. What's the cause of all this joy? Well, you say, I mean, it's, it's because I'm a great farmer. I have a great harvest. It's because I'm a great warrior. Therefore, we have victory. It's because I have all these wonderful children. Those are great. But he says, well, the cause of it is actually in verse 6 here. For unto us a child is born. The cause of all the joy, the peace, and the freedom, and the deliverance. This new king, the same person being spoken of here, was spoken of the prophet in chapter 7. The son of a virgin who would come to maturity in troublesome times. In this passage, he's born. He's taken possession of the government. Unto us a son is born. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Think of it. This is what Isaiah is saying about Messiah. He's saying this. Let's consider just the issue of government here. So this is Messiah. This is what Isaiah is saying about the Messiah. Regarding regarding the government of the nation, regarding the government of your community, regarding the government of your homes, regarding the government of yourself, Isaiah is saying this about Messiah. Messiah is directing this word to us and he's saying, you know what? I'll take it from here. I'll take it. You ever been involved in this like major project that's like not working out so well. You ever been involved in a major project like that? And then here comes somebody that like seems like they really know what they're doing. And they say something like, I'll take it from here. Now, hold on. I mean, it might be a little bit offensive to you, right? Because you might enjoy making a mess of all the stuff you've got in front of you. I mean, you might, you might be like the, uh, the, uh, the, the thankless servant in the parable that says, what you really need is more of me and I like a hundred thousand years and I'll be able to pay this off. But Messiah is saying, no. No, it's not like that, actually. Just remember that picture of reality that uh, we got about darkness? And Isaiah, again, is telling us here, he's saying that this is a happy day for you. And the Messiah Messiah is saying this, I'll take it from here. I will manage your life and the lives of those around you. Breathe in. Exhale. Come on now. Jesus is going to take it from here. Okay? Is that a relief to you? Messiah. Come on! He has got it. The government will be on His shoulders. The government of the universe. 
The government of the nations, the government of the communities, the government of families, the government of individuals. We look to Him. He has revealed a perfect Word. We follow Him. We know just what to do. This God who works by decree and by revelation. The government will be on His shoulder. Entering into His government... His glorious government is to enjoy His leadership, not ours. It's to explore every aspect of His preference in your life, not your own. It's to display a love and respect to God, not yourself. In Isaiah, the Lord Jesus was a sign. Now we see that He is a gift of grace. Now let's look at the attributes of this eternal King. And some men may say, oh, well, this was King Hezekiah. Hezekiah wasn't worshipped like God. He wasn't, there was no king that was referred to in such terms of deity as wonderful and counselor and prince of peace and mighty God and father. Messiah is God. God has been worshipped under all of these names. But nobody's piled them together like Isaiah has. Let's look at this again. Let's think about this. Let's be be overwhelmed with the majesty of God. Why don't we? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of of the increase of His government, and of peace there will be no end. Wonderful, as in Judges chapter 13, 18. Incomprehensible to mortal man. A phenomenon lying altogether beyond human conception or natural occurrence. Not only is everything wonderful in Him, but He is in fact wonderful. He is a wonder. And this is one of the glories of heaven, is that we will always be drawn into the majesty and wonder of God. As much as some of you hate school... There's going to be instruction going on in heaven. And you're going to love it. You're going to love every minute of it. You're going to say, Wow! Look at that! Our Creator God, this personal One who died for me personally, who the three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are so majestic and filled with wonder that I'm amazed. I'm going to grab one of my human friends and we're going to go run in the beautiful new heavens and the new earth and discover more wonder of who God is. That's what you've got to look forward to as those who are redeemed. Counselor. By virtue of the spirit of counsel, he can always counsel for the good of the nation. And us as individuals, no need to surround himself with counselors. Thus he is the ultimate, the end of all counselors. Mighty God. The traditional name of God is in Deuteronomy 10 and Jeremiah 32, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 24. Mighty God. Think of it. 
Eternal Father. Not only possesses eternity, but is the tender, faithful, and wise trainer, guardian, and provider for His people in eternity. Remember when someone came up to the Lord Jesus, and what did they say? They said, show us the Father. Show us the Father. Look at me, he said. I, in spirit and truth, will show you the attributes of the Father. Our Messiah. The Prince of Peace removed all peace-disturbing powers, secures peace among the nations, proves himself to not merely be called divine. It's one thing to say something's divine, but it's another thing altogether to be divine. The Prince of Peace. Eternal Father. This is our Savior. This is the host of communion today. Looking beyond the advent of Christ, beyond the crucifixion and the resurrection, so does Isaiah look far beyond that. He looks right through them and he prophesies the humanity and divinity of the Messiah, but he speaks well beyond the events in Bethlehem and Galilee. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Our triune God does nothing by halves. The Lord Jesus, He said it is finished on the cross and we know that that was the beginning of the end. And Isaiah here is speaking of the end. The Prince of Peace. The mighty God, eternal Father. Let us pray.